Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. In this episode, we're going to pick up with part two of our discussion uh, with Dr. Oppie. If you're just now joining us and haven't listened to the past episode, please hit pause here and go back to the previous episodes. As always, you can find us on iTunes or on Stitcher, or you can stream us live from the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. But you already probably know that if you're listening to that. Also, if you appreciate the content of these episodes or of any of the past episodes, please consider partnering with us uh, on our Patreon account, or you can find uh, the Podbean crowd uh, crowd sharing uh, link on the blog. Uh, We'd really appreciate it, and any of your support is definitely going to go towards uh, getting some new equipment to help improve the quality uh, of these shows. So thank you again for joining us, and enjoy the rest of this discussion in the conclusion of my dialogue with Dr. Graham Oppie. Thanks again. Enjoy the show. arguments or the the positions that I find um, interesting because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lot like you in that um, a lot of times when I when I read the arguments and I read fors and against a lot of times it just uh, I mean it just seems like depending on which what your starting point is your your you know your argument where you're gonna go with it whether it's pretty predetermined um, the the discussions that I've always found interesting um, and I, and I'm not sure if this is where you're going or this is just maybe quasi analogous or not um, but the ones that I found interesting are the more I don't know if transcendental is the word that I'm looking for um, one, one's dealing more with kind of like you said holding up the worldviews and, and and which one works better which one works better to explain you know why the universe seemed to be governed by laws of logic um, why we behave ethically um, what you know why there's conscious so I'm, I'm here thinking of people like thomas nagel and 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 just kind of some more of those some more of those types of considerations and I, i'm wondering what your what some of your thoughts are on those types of issues okay so let's start with the consciousness one mm. so i'm a pretty old-fashioned identity theorist i think uh that uh it's a mistake Uh, to talk about minds at all. There are minded creatures. Creatures are conscious. Creatures perceive. Creatures feel. 
and so on. So I don't deny at all that that creatures are conscious, and I don't deny that when we're talking about um, consciousness, we'll say things about that that you might, in other terms, describe as expressions of what it's like to be in a certain kind of state, and so on. But my story about those creatures and what's going on is, by and large, um, to do with neural events. So what it is for me to perceive is for me to be embedded in a certain kind of environment with receiving certain kinds of stimulations that produce certain kinds of events in my head and those in my brain, and those events just are my perceiving whatever it is I'm looking at, the tree or the, the bird or whatever. Right, so that's the kind of view of consciousness that I favour. It's a view that, in a certain sense, denies that there's a hard problem with consciousness, but I don't think that it denies any of the facts mm. about the way that um, conscious experience is distributed over the animal kingdom or, you know, if you think people are different, not animals, over people and animals. Right, so that's... and. When you've got that kind of view, uh, it's. I think it's going to be very hard to get any mileage towards favouring theism over naturalism. Of course, the view is extremely controversial, but that's fine. Right. Philosoph- philosophical views very often are. And I'm well aware of the kinds of arguments that people make against uh, identity theories. So, you know, things like, Jackson's um, Mary argument, Chalmers' zombie argument, it's not going to be too surprising what I'm going to say, given that I'm an identity theorist. There can't be zombies, right? I mean, Chalmers' argument is just going to fall down right at the beginning. It couldn't be um, that the world was just as it is, but I didn't somehow or other I didn't have the experiences that I do. That's impossible because my the world being it as, as it is and these events happening just is what it is for me to have the experiences. So, um, so, so that will be my response, and that's a response to Nagel just as much as it, as it is a response to Chalmers, right? So this this is a line that there are other people who run versions of this kind of line. It's not just me. Um, so and Dennett would be an example of somebody who right. runs an at least somewhat similar line. Um, but that's that's my view. Um, that's what I think about consciousness and why I think that it actually doesn't cut any ice, really, in the, <laughs> in the dispute over theism. Of course, there are people who think that minds are somehow distinct entities from brains and that qualia are somehow or other entities that are distinct from uh, neural events and processes and so on. And if you've got that kind of view, then there's some more work to do to argue about whether now we've got something that advantages theism over naturalism. Depends now a little bit what naturalism is going to be. Maybe it's not quite naturalism that's the opposing view anymore. Maybe it has to be some kind of extended view on which you allow a certain amount of, you know, you, you, you allow there to be some kind of non-natural stuff that lets the minds. I don't know. I've this. I've 
speculated I speculate about that a little bit in the little book on the best argument against God um, but my preferred position is just to say identity theory <laughs> right what about what about maybe some of the other ones like um, um, maybe the laws of logic um, or we've where we've mentioned um, uh, moral claims and, and things like that are, are those are those the types of arguments that you're thinking of when you're talking about um, kind of weighing uh, which worldview is is preferable over sure. others as opposed to straightforward so, syllogisms so so the stuff that we've just been talking about about consciousness mm-hmm. is just the kind of thing to talk about right because I'm part of the point I was trying to make is it's controversial. I have a particular view and on the way that I weigh things up, it seems to me that there's going to be no advantage here to theism over naturalism. Other people might weigh it up differently. And then then we get the argument's going to come down to an argument about whether the identity theory is the correct account of consciousness and you know, mental states more generally or not. Um, so consciousness is definitely a good topic. It's one of the things to think about. As you say, logic and morality, reason, they're a bunch of other things to think about. So one question to ask is going to be, what could explain the obtaining of the laws of logic? Why, supposing that it's a law, that it can't be that both P and not P, or it's got to be that either P or not P. And that one's controversial. Not everybody thinks it's a law of logic. Um, well, in fact, the first one's controversial too, right? because in the in the, in the the case of P or not P, um, intuitionists deny that that's a law of logic. In the case of not both P and not P, paraconsistentists deny that that's a law of logic and pick almost anything, right? And right. find logicians who are interested in constructing logical systems that omit that law, and then there are people who think maybe it's not a law of logic after all. But let's, let's suppose, and let's, I mean, to make it really simple, let's suppose that the laws of classical logic really are laws. Mm. What could make it the case that they're the laws. <clears throat> it strikes me that the only plausible theory here is going to be it's just primitive. It's just primitive necessity that we've got, that the laws are necessary and there's no further explanation of why. Let's try constructing an explanation in particular. Let's suppose that God makes it the case that the laws hold. Right, so this particular thing that God does at a certain point in the cause of order, he says, henceforth it shall be that these are the laws. And then I want to ask, okay, and what were things like before that? Right? Before God made it the laws. Was it the case that God wasn't self-identical? Was it the case that God both was and wasn't omnipotent? Was it that God was neither omnipotent nor omniscient because these things hadn't yet been made laws? Very hard to see how you can make sense of the idea. I mean, Descartes thought that it was up to God. God could have made the logic and mathematics however he wanted, right? right. He could have made it the case that two and two are five. He could have made it that um, contradictions are all true. I don't believe that, right? right? And I don't think it makes even makes sense to suppose that God could have promulgated the laws of logic. But that just means that 
on the theist and naturalist views, that really the only sensible option here is they're necessary, brutally so, right? So we just have a bunch of primitives right. on either view, and so it comes out equal. Yeah, I, I think for I think for the theist, um, uh, I mean, I, in in a lot of my conversations, um, kind of with uh, on, you know online atheists, for whatever that's worth, um, there's 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 always a discussion about well, uh, you know, what does om- what does omnipotence mean, and can God uh, make uh, you know can, can God can do anything as opposed to God can do any logically possible thing. Um, and I and I think um, that that might be kind of a, a recourse for Christians or, or theists to say, well, the laws of logic. Uh, it, it's not that there's something that God um, just created and then you know instantiated in creation, but maybe um, they're 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 just a reflection of of how God thinks. Um, so they're just as um, they're they're just as immutable and necessary uh, as God because they're they're an attribute of of the mind of God. So when God created. Uh, it's not that he's saying, you know, from from here on out, uh, you know, contradictions won't be possible. Or he could have said, you know, contradictions are possible. Or you know, how Descartes. Uh, but there, but that when when God created, he created uh, in accordance with his nature. Uh, right. Okay. And that's fine. And now let's ask: and why is this a property of his nature? Right. 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 And uh, is it necessarily a property of his nature? And we're going to get down to. A bunch of brute necessities, right? Right. I mean, if you push, right, and so that won't make any difference to the overall outcome, right? Well, um, and I and I, I think this would be where where um, where it's it, where I, I think we largely agree that the the outcome might not be different, but the reason why these these discussions are are important in moving the dialogue forward is we might then say, well. Uh, can 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 one concept of a of a brute reality or an axiom maybe um, uh, carry its weight a little bit more? Um, so um, does it um, does it explain it a little bit more? I, I'm not sure exactly your yeah. view on morality, but just kind of analogously, I would say, well, you know, for me, it makes more sense to say, um, uh, you know, justice exists because um, it, it mirrors the attribute of God, rather than to say there's this. You know, this is kind of Nagel's thing. There's this weird, abstract, brute reality known as justice. Like one of those concepts yeah. just seems to make more sense. I don't know if that is kind of what you're right. trying to drive so, the conversation. Well, okay, so maybe talking about morality for a bit will be good. Uh, so some people think that God is sort of like the measuring stick mm-hmm. for morality. Uh, I think that if you take that analogy seriously, um, it doesn't lead you where you might expect. So um, in the investigations, Wittgenstein talks about the standard meter, mm. and he says, and Kripke says, it was a very strange thing for him to say, that there's one thing of which it's neither true nor not true that it's exactly one metre long, and that's the standard meter. Now, I agree with Kripke that was a bizarre thing to see, say, but I, I think you can see what the... Um, the sorry, my phone's going. Um, I'll just get turning it off. Um, the the if you think that the standard meter um, is the measuring stick for everything else, right? Then there's no answer to the question: 
why is the standard metre exactly this long? Because it must have been that it was just an arbitrary choice, right? We just selected something to be the standard and then we measured everything else against it. It's not like we could have measured it out to start with because there was nothing to measure it out with. And this is a kind of generalizable property of measuring sticks, right? If something really is a measuring stick, then it's just arbitrary that it is the way it is, right? If we've got something, and it's not arbitrary that it's the way it is, right? It's got a certain property, like it's a metre long, right? That's because there was a separate measure that we could measure it up against. So when it comes to God and we talk about morality and you want God to be the measure, right? We can just carry over the lessons that we learned from thinking about the metre stick. There are two possibilities. Either it's just completely arbitrary that God has the properties, you know, that the, the set of properties that God instantiates are the ones that he happens to instantiate and have, are the measuring stick for morality, or else God measures up to some external standard, right? The external standard presumably being that there's a bunch of necessary truths about the moral. Right? And there are people, I mean, Bill Craig's one, but there are lots of them who try to wiggle through um, this argument, but I don't think that you can. Right? What I think is, um, and I'm having some argument in the in the discussion about um, philosophy and Christianity with Tim McGrew mm-hmm. about this at the moment. What I think is that it's no more difficult for the naturalists to suppose that there's a bunch of necessary moral truths than it is for the theists to suppose that there's a bunch of necessary moral truths. So um, supposing, I mean, not all naturalists want to go this way, but supposing that you want to say, yeah, there's a bunch of objective moral truths, um, it's just going to turn out there's a bunch of primitive commitments here for you, just as there are for the theist. Right. So that's, that's the kind of line that I want to run about morality as well. Right. Um, so what are, what are some of your responses then um, specifically to, to uh, Nagel? So uh, his, his you know, recent uh, work, Mind and Cosmos, where he's, um, he's basically said, I, I, I know, you know, responding to an entire book is, is impossible, but just kind of general, he's, he's basically said, um, look, naturalism has, has largely failed as a project. Yeah, so uh, we, we need to come up with something else. Right? So, I mean, what do you what do you do with something like that? So, so I just disagree. Right? Yeah. I mean, I've already I've already talked about why I think he's wrong about consciousness, uh, and I think it, and essentially I've just said why I think he's wrong about morality right. as well. And there's something very similar that I'm going to say about reason, though. There, uh, I think I'll talk a lot more about evolution um, and sort of evolutionary explanations of the development of reasoning capacities. Um, but I think that uh, Nagel's not recognising the explanatory options that are available to naturalism, but that may be because he has a very narrow definition of what naturalism is. Right? I think that naturalism says that natural reality exhausts causal reality. There are no non-natural causes. That's the first thing. The second thing that it says is that minds are late and local. You you find so minds belong to biologically evolved creatures. I mean, they may 
be on other planets, you know, there may be aliens of one kind or another. But the only kinds of minds that there are are the minds of evolved creatures on planets. And the third thing that I think is part of naturalism is that there's nothing that's divine or worthy of worship. So the reason why I include that is so that pantheism doesn't come out counting the kind of naturalism. <laughs> right. Right? So uh, the kind of naturalism that I've got in mind uh, is just committed to those three things. Now, those three things on their own said nothing about how you explain consciousness or morality or um, reason or whatever. They leave room for it to turn out that there's a whole bunch of primitives, theoretical primitives here, which is what I think ought to turn out to be the case, right? With logic, um, the laws of logic are necessary, and he hit rock bottom. <laughs> right, and that's fine. There's no that's 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 true. I think on any view, it's no worse for naturalists than it is for anyone else. Right. Um, how about um, let's see? I'm not sure how much you wanna you wanna tip your hand or reveal your hand. Uh, and I and I know you said it was a little hard to explain, uh, but you're doing some work on Pascal's wager. Um, yeah. Is it is it is it too soon? Is it is it undercover? Is it something that we talk about? <coughs> uh, okay, so I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to do justice to um, Paul's thinking. On this I'll, I'll put it. I'll put a disclaimer. This so, is a this is a sneak preview. Uh, people can can rush to, to to purchase the work once it's done to get the the fully orbed uh, view. <laughs> um, so. Where to start? We'll start with Pascal's wager, what, mm. what, what I'm talking about. So, I mean, given some of our email correspondence, things that you said about Pascal's wager in the correspondence, uh, it's really not clear what Pascal intended for mm. the wager argument. It's not clear what the finished text of the Ponce's was supposed to look like. Mm. It seems quite likely that the wager was just meant to be a teaser at the beginning to hook people in and that he didn't really think of it as a serious argument. Uh, that seems like a plausible hypothesis. Who knows, right? We don't. We just don't have evidence. That, and to, to and I, lar- I largely agree. I, I've always thought it was weird when people treat it as a, 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 a syllogistic, formal argument. It just right. is bizarre. But anyway, that's what yeah. I'm going to do. Right? Yeah. So, because there are lots of people who do. Right. So, so we have this argument. We suppose I have a choice. I can either wager for God or not. It can be either that God exists or God doesn't exist. There's some probability. I think that God exists, call it P. There's some, hence, probability, mm. one minus P, that God doesn't exist. I suppose that P is strictly between zero and one. If I think the probability of God is zero or that it's one, then the wager argument is of no interest to me. Mm. And we can, so we can just set that case aside. We suppose that if I wager for God and God exists, then the value of that outcome will be infinite. So that, that's the utility that I give to that outcome. All the other utilities are finite. In working out what to do, I calculate the expected utility of the actions. If I wager for God, it's P times infinity plus 1 minus P times the finite value, so it's infinite. If I don't wager for God, I get P times a finite quantity plus 1 minus P times a finite quantity. It's finite. Principle says I should act so as always to maximise expected utility. Says I should wager for God. 
Right? So that's what rationality, practical rationality requires me to do, wager right. for God. Now, having said what wagering for God is, let's not worry about the details. <laughs> one objection, one objection to this argument is, look, if you think that there's this possible source of infinite utility that by wagering for God you might get um, an infinitely happy life in the future, you've got to allow that there are other possible sources of infinite utility, right? There might be other gods, for example. I mean, there's one version of it, so usually it's given us the many gods objections. So it might be, right, there's, you, you suppose that there's this god that rewards all and only the people who believe in it and, sorry, wager for it. I'll sometimes slip into talking about belief, but I want to... And maybe that's what you need to do in the end to get the reward is the right to believe. Um, but you... <laughs> Belief's not immediately subject to the will, so the action that I'm choosing to do can't be to believe. It's got to be something else. We'll call it wagering. Maybe it's the thing that I think is most likely to make me end up believing or something like that. Okay, but there might be other gods. There might be a perverse god who rewards all and only those people who don't believe in it. There might be um, a nice god who rewards everybody, regardless of what they believe. There might be an indifferent god who rewards nobody, regardless of what they believe. Once you start, and, and, and there might be a God who is very fond of reason and rewards only those atheists who, believe, who don't believe in God for the right reasons, for good reasons. Now, that might sound a bit weird, right? But that's, so, sorry, let me say it again. The, it's not that he rewards atheists. He rewards everyone who uses their reason appropriately in order to decide what to do, and that can be atheists just as much as it can be theists. Right? So there's a range of possible gods here. I actually, and, just, to, just to interrupt, I, I had never thought of that before. Uh, if you put in kind of a Schellenberg uh, divine hiddenness, you actually could get uh, a god who's intentionally hid himself uh, so that people using their reason wouldn't believe. I mean, that that is a... Yeah. I, don't, I don't think you misspoke. Yeah. I actually think that could be uh, yeah. one of those possibilities. Right. So, so, so there's a bunch of possibilities. So, and there's a kind of infinite reward that turns up in a lot of columns. So when you calculate the expected utilities, you now get a draw. There's a whole lot of things that turn out to have infinite expected utility. You no longer have a reason to believe, or the argument doesn't tell you to believe in the jealous God. The argument can't pick between the nice God, the jealous God, um, and, and various others. Mm. Okay, so... Paul has this very nice way of setting things up so that he can um, get it to come out that you should prefer the jealous God to the very nice God or uh, the indifferent God or the perverse God. Right? I mean, so... He, he develops a kind of alternative way of formulating the argument. I think I better not try to explain that part of it um, because it'll take too long. I mean, there's a kind of obvious reason why you should wager on the jealous God rather than the very nice God. Right? The very nice God is going to regard, reward you regardless of what you think. The jealous God will only reward you if you believe in it. So, of course, you should believe in it because if it happens to be the very nice guy, you'll get rewarded too, right? Um, 
there's obviously no point wagering on a god who rewards no one. Right. Right. That's right. There's no point in doing that. Um, there will be gods where you get a tie. So imagine that there's a god who who's sort of partly nice. Um, so imagine the contest is more extensive. So you've got jealous god, nice god, perverse god. And the nice god will reward you if you wager on the perverse god or on it, but not if you wager on the jealous god. And the perverse god will reward you if you wager on the nice god, but not if you wager on the jealous god. In that circumstance, uh, and you can use Paul's formalism to show this, you'll do better. Um, it, it looks as though you're going to do better to wager on the nice god in preference to the jealous god. But there was something inadequate about supposing that the only options were ones where you didn't get rewarded for wagering on the jealous god. Like there could be another nice god that rewards you if you wager on the jealous god, but not if you wager on the first god. When you take that into account, Paul says, so you have to sort of, if you really extend your table and you put all the gods in it, it will turn out that you should pick the jealous god. That's, that's Paul's idea. My worry about this is that there's another option here. You can imagine a bunch of gods for, say, so I'm going to call this a jealous cartel of gods, who will reward you so long as you wager on one of them. So imagine there are four gods, four possible gods, and for each of them it's true that they'll reward you so long as you wager on one of them, whichever of the four exists. Well, then you should wager on one of them in preference to the one that, the god that you have to wager on it in order to get the reward because now you've got four chances as against one, assuming all the gods are equally likely. So it's going to turn out, I think, that the way that the way that Paul's thinking about things, you shouldn't wager on the Abrahamic god because you've got to get it exactly right in order to get the reward from the Abrahamic god. You know, thou shalt have no other god but me. You know, you've got to. Right. You've got to whereas, whereas what you should do in this framework that Paul develops is wager on a god that belongs to a jealous cartel because then even if you're not getting it exactly right you've got a bunch of other chances of getting it too anyway so that's the that was the, that's the thought right, right. Um, Paul's formalism is quite complicated and I really I skipped over a lot of the details of this view so I'm not sure how helpful what I just said will be but it was. That's, it's, what it's, been, that's what I've been thinking. About. <laughs> so, so really, we should be uh, uh, polytheistic uh, Canaanites rather than uh, well, <laughs> monotheistic. Supposing <laughs> that there's only one God, right? It's just there's lots of possibilities, right? And so, one thought is, you've got to wager. You've got to identify exactly a possible God and wager on it. And if you right. get it slightly wrong, you're in big trouble. Another view is, pick a God, and so long as God, the God that exists. Is near enough like that God, that will be good enough. Right. Right. And that seems like a better option because there's more chance that you're going to get it right. Right. And so it looks like it's not it's not polytheism. It's just a much more relaxed God, a God who thinks, 
eh, it doesn't really matter if you wager on me. You could just as long as it's a lot like me, that will be good enough. Right. So right. And, it's, and it feels like that's going to be a better option. So right. ho- horseshoes, the- close close counts, and horseshoes, hand grenades, and Pascal's wager. Yeah. yeah. So okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I think uh, maybe maybe coming closer to an end. Um, what is um, maybe not an argument, but but a line of reasoning that does um, you know you know maybe not the proverbial keep up at night or anything, but but something that that that's challenging um, to your naturalism. What's what's um, maybe a certain um, theistic philosopher or just line of argument that you think poses a, a, a strong a strong challenge. Whatever, whatever philosophical position you take on anything, there are going to be lots of challenges to it. Um, one kind of general challenge is just this. Uh, the things that belong to philosophy, the, the claims that belong to philosophy, just don't secure expert agreement. They don't secure agreement amongst philosophers. So... There's a kind of, I mean, this is not so much a question about particular things. It's a kind of more general thing. Right. A sort of worry about philosophy. Why is that? Why, why is it that um, the stuff that belongs to philosophy is all stuff that we just can't agree on? Right. And this is something that I keep coming back to. I what I've what I am inclined to say is partly that this is just in the nature of philosophy. So philosophy just is the collection of things where there's no agreement among experts on the answers to the questions, and then it's not even agreement on the methods that we should use in order to solve them. So if you think about maths or physics or chemistry or other disciplines, which were once philosophy, because once we had no idea how to answer questions that, are, that we are, have methods for answering. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, What's true about philosophy is that it's just everything that's left over. And if you think about a particular discipline like physics, um, this big central area where we know what we're doing, we know how to answer questions, we know what methods to use, as you move out towards the periphery, you move out into areas where it kind of shades over into philosophy. There's, there's the areas where we don't yet know how to answer, how to answer questions. So, um, you know maybe the kind of outer reaches of speculation about string theory is a kind of boundary where where now it's not clear that it's physics or whether it's philosophy because we really don't know um, how to answer the questions and what methods to use even to answer the questions that we're thinking about there. There are some things, though, that some bits of philosophy are not just the periphery of another discipline. Things like metaphysics, epistemology, seem to be just taken up with questions we don't know how to answer. Um, and for some people that raises questions about whether it's worth doing these things um, about whether 
even if though it would be worth doing these things, there's not much point worrying about it now when we've got no idea how to proceed and so on. Uh, that's the kind of that's the kind of question that I worry about, and it it relates back to philosophy of religion because I think that there's no expert agreement on the central questions in philosophy of religion either. We don't know how we don't we don't know how to secure expert agreement on the question whether God exists, and we don't even know. It's not even, you know, we, I, I think we can't even imagine how we might come up with a method that would enable us to do that. Right. Um, so, so when I when I worry about things, it's that kind of issue that I tend to worry about. Um, what I mean, I suppose part of my response to that is now we just agree to disagree, and then you just go on with um, working away on whatever it is that you're interested in. New and interesting arguments come up all the time. Mm. So this is another thing. I've been working on arguments about the existence of God for a long time. Uh, you might have thought that by now I would have exhausted the arguments, but that's not true. New, new arguments keep coming up. There's new and interesting work being done by various people on various of the arguments. One thing to look out for is a new book on cosmological arguments from Alex Proust and Josh Rasmussen. I think that's going to be a good book. Yeah. Be yeah. Very good. Um, what do you think are, um, so speaking of all these new, the new arguments that are coming out and, and some of these um, uh, burgeoning uh, fields on, on maybe the peripheries of science um, or some of the disciplines, what do you think are um, maybe some of the areas that are, are lacking in discussion between uh, various worldviews um, that, that maybe can use a little bit more attention um, that might help these, these dialogues uh, along. I think almost everything in uh, religions outside the Abrahamic religions and most things outside of Christianity are things that could do with more discussion. Uh, I think that in the Western Academy, for understandable reasons, the focus in philosophy of religion has been very heavily on Christianity and in recent times, not even on the full sweep of Christianity. There's been, in, in philosophy of religion, there's been, I think, a remarkable... Um, focus on what you might broadly think of as Calvinist um, philosophy. And I think it would be a good thing if the conversation broadened out to include the full sweep of religions of the world and the philosophical issues that are raised by them. And there are lots of interesting philosophical questions that are raised by, for example, Buddhism and Hinduism. And in both there's a very long tradition of philosophers working on interesting questions. So there's a very long history of Buddhist philosophy and a very long history of Hindu philosophy, and there's lots and lots of interesting stuff there. But we philosophers of religion in the West know next to nothing about all of that work, and I think that's a shame. Right. 
All right. Well, um, any anything you'd like to to add? Uh, I mean, the my audience is is um, usually a large mix of uh, Christians and atheists uh, who who enjoy the dialogue, um, uh, possibly who are tired of some of the inflammatory dialogue that happens from. Um, uh, I, I'm I'm starting to move away from calling people fundamentalists and more uh, just fanatics on either side. Um, uh, any 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 uh, words of encouragement or hope for the, the the people braving the straits in between? So I, I know fanatics. Um, I I guess I agree with you that there's lots of intemperate language that gets used, especially but not only on the internet. Um, and it would be nice if that didn't happen. But on the other hand, in one sense, you might think the stakes are really low because there just seems to be no prospect of actually making progress in this area, right? Expert agreement isn't converging. So you might think uh, that's part of the reason why you get the kind of intemperate language, but it also points to the fact that we're unlikely to resolve the problem anytime soon. Um, on the other hand, these things do matter. They matter to people, they, you know, they, they shape to, to a large extent the choices that you make in connection with, for example, religion, shape the kind of life that you end up leading. And thinking about questions that bear on the truth of your religious beliefs or lack of religious beliefs is obviously an activity that most people are going to enter into. Um, so, and it's not just religion. I mean, political uh, discourses are no different. Uh, it's hardly any more temperate. And I'm, I guess in your country, the two things overlap to some extent. That is the... Um, <clears throat> there's something of a match between having certain kind of religious orientation, having certain kind of political orientation. So the two things are not entirely separate. There are lots of um, naturalists and atheists who vote Democrat. So, <laughs> and to put it that way. Yeah, true. Uh, well, thank you again so much, Dr. Mm -hmm. Oppie, for, for joining me here. Um, really, really appreciate you coming on and, and uh, letting uh, some more people hear uh, more about your work. Uh, for those who want to follow you, find out um, uh, more about you, read some of your other um, articles and published work, where can, where can people find uh, you and, and your stuff? <sighs> so... <clears throat> Monash University website is a mess. It has been for a long time. We're trying to, the university is trying to put it back together. So there isn't anywhere that's really great for getting access to um, information about my publications or about me. The best thing is probably my Facebook page. Uh, well, no, that's probably not true. There's not a whole lot of information. There. It's just a, there's a lot of um, cartoons and uh, articles that I hope are interesting, but that's about it. Um, 
I don't know. That's so. It's a good question. I mean, I have. You can you can search fill papers. You can, uh, which is a really useful. Um, uh, source of information about publications in philosophy that is hardly complete. You can search philosophers index, but only you know, a small fraction of the things I've written are, are located there. Uh, it's something I should do more about, but I, but I haven't. It's not that easy to find it. I don't know anywhere except on my own computer where you could find a full list of my publications. Got it. Well, maybe I could. Maybe I can encourage you to, to come up with your own uh, your own bibliography of your own work and maybe some, some places that people can find them. So I know, uh, I know I would appreciate the list and I'm sure lots of other people would as well. So, all right. Oh, it's, it is a, it is a project, but maybe I won't do it this summer. I've got <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, again, thank you, Dr. Oppie for coming on. I, I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. So it's been nice talking to you. Thanks very much for inviting me. Thanks so much. Well, that wraps up our discussion with Dr. Graham Oppie. Again, a special thanks to Dr. Oppie for joining me on the show and taking some time out of his busy schedule for that. I really do appreciate it. Hopefully, you all enjoyed the discussion the dialogue and got to know a little bit more about one of uh, the greater thinkers alive today doing some work in philosophy of religion. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations for this show or any previous shows, feel free to email us at freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. You you can visit the blog at freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or visit the Freethinker Facebook page. Thank you again for joining us. Next time, we will pick up where we left off on the doctrines of grace. Thank you again. Good night and God bless.